Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. For us. Father, we do pray that you would bless your word today. Wherever people are in their walk with you, I pray that your word would penetrate their heart and just bring forth great fruit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible says, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread, after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal upon him. And they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In a poll from 2015, Barna highlighted what's been called our new moral code. The sadder thing is, I'm sure the statistics are worse now than they were five years ago. But here are the percentages of those who agree completely or somewhat with the following statements. Pay particular attention to the percentage of those who call themselves Christians. The best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. 91% of U.S. adults agreed 76% of practicing Christians agreed. People should not criticize someone else's lifestyle choices. 89% agreed. 76% of Christians agreed. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. 86% agreed. 72% of Christians agreed. The highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. 84% agreed. 66% of Christians agreed. People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 79% agreed. 61% of Christians agreed. Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. 69% agreed, and 40% of Christians agreed. Based on these results, the morality of self-fulfillment is everywhere, like the air we breathe. Much of the time, we don't even notice because we're constantly being bombarded with messages like these. They're the kind that reinforce self-fulfillment, such as music, movies, video games, apps, commercials, TV shows, and every other kind of media. Today, Jesus is going to tell a group of people to not work for things that perish, but instead to work for things that pertain to eternal life. Look at verse 22 with me. 
On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered into the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread, after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. With Jesus and his disciples having crossed the lake to the western shore during the night, the scene the next day shifted back to the east side of the lake. At least part of the crowd had witnessed Jesus' healings and had been miraculously fed. They stood there the following morning on the eastern side of the sea. They apparently had spent the night there, and in the morning they were looking for him, hoping for another free meal. Gradually it dawned on them that something strange had happened. They remembered that there had been no other small boat there the previous day, except the one the disciples had used. They also knew that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the disciples had gone away alone. The mystery then was, where was Jesus if he had not left with the disciples? The crowd, of course, could not have known what really happened as they had not witnessed him walking on the water. All they know is they saw 12 men get in the boat and then leave. They had no way of knowing that Jesus had walked on the water and came to his disciples in the midst of a horrific storm. Does that remind you of another story in the Bible? During a time of Babylonian captivity, three young Hebrew men were put under a tremendous trial solely because of their faithfulness to God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery pit because they refused to bow down to an idol. But what did King Nebuchadnezzar say? He said, did I not throw three men into the furnace? And someone probably replied, yes, your neviness. Then the king said, then, why do I see now four men in the fire? Someone is in that fire that was not there initially. And the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, this is what I want us to see. In our account today, we are told later in verse 22 that the crowd knew that Jesus wasn't on the boat when the disciples left. But now, suddenly and miraculously, he is with them. In fact, they could have said, were there not just 12 men on that boat? But do I not now count 13 in the 13th? is like the Son of God. Why the other boats came to the place where the thousands ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks is not clear. Perhaps the owners of the boats had heard of the miraculous feeding and had come to investigate. Or they may have come to pick up their friends and loved ones or to act as water taxis. Perhaps seeking, seeking to cash in on the large numbers of people in need of transportation. Or they may have just been forced to seek shelter from the same storm in which the disciples had been called in the night before. The text is a little vague here. Look at verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Roughly 21 times each week, 
people are compelled to engage in a particular activity and they will sacrifice almost anything for that opportunity. For most, it's a top priority. Chances are you have already done it once today and you're likely to do it a couple more times before the end of the day. We do this activity alone, but prefer to share it with company. We include this activity in almost every festive occasion we plan, and sometimes it is the festive occasion. By now, you probably guessed that I'm referring to eating. Not only do we depend upon food for our survival, we celebrate it as an art, savor it as a luxury, share it in a community, and even abuse it as a sort of therapy. I've never seen a travel brochure that didn't highlight the importance of what you would be eating and how often. Food is the primary subject of countless magazines, books, websites, and television shows. We even have entire channels dedicated to the preparation and consumption of food. 24 hours each day, seven days a week, all year around. Now, those of us who benefit from 21st century abundance cannot truly appreciate the perspective of people struggling to survive in first century Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. Spending time in developing countries where one's next meal is never guaranteed would help us appreciate the significance of Jesus' miraculous provision of food in the wilderness. John emphasizes the fact that each person received as much as he or she desired and that the provision of the food exceeded their capacity to eat. Undoubtedly, for many of them, this was the first time in a long time they had gone to bed on a full stomach. And so we should not be too critical of that multitude in the wilderness. They woke up hungry the following morning, just like each one of us will do tomorrow. One commentator notes that Jesus purposely did not answer their question. Just the day before, they had tried to make him king by force after he had miraculously fed them. And so telling them of one of another spectacular miracle would only have fueled their misguided messianic fervor. Besides, as I said last week, the Lord did not commit himself to seeking false disciples. He ignored their irrelevant and superficial question and addressed the deeper issue of their sinful motives. They asked Jesus, when did you come here? Jesus completely ignores the question and asks them the even more important question, and that is the question is not, when did I come here, but why did you come here? Our account continues by contrasting the response of the twelve with the response of the crowd that Jesus had just fed. They too had witnessed his divine power, but instead of responding with heartfelt worship, they responded with selfishness and greed. Though the crowd sought Jesus, they did so for the wrong reasons. They followed him for what they could get. They were not interested in either worshiping him or obeying him. Instead of responding with humble worship, they just wanted more from him. They had no other interest in Jesus. They wanted him to serve them. They were like, Jesus, we have been looking everywhere for you. To which Jesus replies, yeah, but only because I'm a walking restaurant to some of you. They came to him like cats to the sound of a can opener. 
The purpose of the sign was that he might preach the sermon. Again, it was a ministry of both grace and truth. In grace, our Lord fed the hungry people, but in truth, he gave them the word of God. They wanted the food, but they did not want the truth. And in the end, most of them abandoned Jesus and refused to walk with him. The Lord's rebuke, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled, laid bare their selfish, materialistic hearts. So blinded were they by this superficial desire for food and miracles that they missed the true spiritual significance of Jesus' person and mission. They were moved not by full hearts, but by full bellies. Remember, this is the same crowd that a few verses prior wanted to forcibly make Jesus the king. But what I want us to understand is, in less than 24 hours, they are going to turn on their heels and walk away from him. The fluctuating emotions of a crowd has always amazed me. I think of Acts chapter 26. Paul and his companions had suffered a shipwreck, and they washed ashore on an island called Malta. The apostle Paul is gathering wood for a fire, and a viper from the wood bites, bites Paul on the hand. The natives see this and say to one another, This man was obviously a murderer, for though he was saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Well, Paul shakes off the viper like it's no more than a mosquito bite. Now, let me read you the next verse. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. They were like, well, he's either a murderer or he's a god. Can you say fickle? All that to say, let's not ever let the crowd determine who we are. They can't be trusted. When we begin to think along these lines, the attitude of the mob repels us. But are we so very different? William Barclay writes at this point in his commentary, When we want comfort and sorrow, when we want strength and difficulty, when we want peace and turmoil, when we want help when life has got us down, there is no one so wonderful as Jesus. Then we talk to him and walk with him and open our hearts to him. But when he comes to us with some stern demand for sacrifice, with some challenge to effort, with the offer of some cross, then we will have nothing to do with him. When we examine our hearts, it may be, that we will find that we too love Jesus for what we can get out of him. And when he comes to us with this great challenges and demands, we too grow lukewarm and even resentful and hostile to this disturbing and demanding Christ. I find that very convicting. The crowd was not motivated by faith, repentance, or genuine love for him. On the contrary, they followed the Lord because they saw the signs which he was performing. Sadly, not much has changed. They sought the benefits of his power in their physical lives, but not in their spiritual lives. Let me outline what I mean in more precise terms. First, 
Although the crowd was obviously seeking Jesus in one sense, at the same time, it's obvious that the minds of these individuals were on themselves. We see that clearly in the matter of the food which Jesus mentions. I wonder, do we also do that when we seek Christ? Do we come with our mind filled, not so much with Jesus and his all-surpassing worth, but with our needs or what we imagine our needs to be? May I even say it more strongly? I am convinced that one of the major steps to achieving good spiritual mental health is getting our minds off of ourselves entirely and on the Lord instead. Look at verse 27 with me. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. What does it mean to labor for food that perishes? Jesus contrasted physical food, which is the result of work and perishes quickly, which with spiritual food, which comes by grace and lasts forever. Both are necessary, for they fulfill two legitimate human needs. Life cannot continue without either. However, our fall and fleshly nature craves one to the exclusion of the other. The distinction between food which perishes and food which endures into eternal life is, of course, symbolic. Physical food represents any and all things that satisfy legitimate bodily desires, such as nourishment, clothing, shelter, medicine, sex, exercise, and rest. Spiritual food, on the other hand, represents the need of the human soul to be sustained by its maker. Jesus is saying that that is by far the most important. Yet most people hardly give the spiritual side of their lives the time of day. It's all about living life now and trying to die with the most toys and leaving behind a good-looking corpse. And that's the danger. Because in the short term, it seems like that is actually working. When God, through the prophet Jeremiah, told the Israelites to stop their repugnant practices of burning incense to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, the defense of their actions are telling. They said in response to Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah 44:17. But rather, we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings, and our princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and were well off and saw no misfortune. But since we stopped burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have met our end by the sword and by famine. Tragically, they made their decision regarding what was true about reality based on the immediate practical results that followed and not on what God had told them through his prophet. Speaking to a secular audience on MSNBC's Morning Joe show, Tim Keller offered the following advice on work, careers, and success. He said, when you make your work your identity, 
If you're successful, it destroys you because it goes to your head. If you're not successful, it destroys you because it goes to your heart and destroys your self-worth. Faith in Christ gives you an identity that's not in work or accomplishment, and that gives you insulation against the changes. If you're successful, you stay humble. If you're not successful, you have some ballast. He finishes by saying, Work is a great thing when it is a servant instead of a Lord. Please listen to me. All of us realize that material things are going to perish eventually. But Jesus is saying they're perishing even presently. If you're laboring for something in this world, be it anything, from a reputation to some kind of physical satisfaction, it will never work. It's like cotton candy. You bite into it, and it's sweet, and it tastes good for about four seconds. But there's no substance. There is no way it could ever fill you up. You'll go into a sugar coma first. In the same way, whatever it is you're striving for won't fill you up because everything this side of heaven lacks solidity. And so you're left of, being, of your life being reduced to going to work, to earn money, to buy bread, to give you strength, to go to work, to earn money, to buy bread, to give you strength. It's a vicious and unending cycle if that's all that you live for. We humans are creatures of habit. For example, once we've used a, a toothpaste brand, that becomes our toothpaste. No other paste or gel will do. We would rather brush our teeth with earwax than with another kind of toothpaste. Whether or not that's a bit much, you get the point. We like what we like, and we do what we do. And changing that can be extremely difficult. Too often, clarity only comes with age. When he was an old man, Malcolm Muggeridge wrote, When I look back on my life nowadays, what strikes me most forcibly about it is that what seemed at the time most significant and seductive seems now most futile and absurd. For instance, success in all of its various guises, being known and being praised, ostensible pleasures like acquiring money or seducing women, in retrospect, all these exercises in self-gratification seem pure fantasy, what Pascal called licking the earth. Licking the earth. That's a graphic image, isn't it? One of my favorite scenes from the movie City Slickers is when a despondent Billy Crystal stands before his son's grade school class and decides to teach them a lesson that they perhaps are not ready to learn. He begins with, Value this time in your life, kids, because this is the time when you still have your choices and it goes by so quickly. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. In your 30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, and you think to yourself, what happened to my 20s? In, you, in your 40s, you grow a little pot belly and another chin. The music starts to get too loud, 
and one of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. In your 70s, you spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate in soft yogurt and muttering, how come the kids don't ever call? Any questions? I love that. Mainly because you didn't mention those of us in our 50s. But if this sounds familiar, it's because it's the lesson of Ecclesiastes. A rueful Solomon stands in front of the class of the human race and asks, What do people get for all their hard work? Generations come and generations go, but nothing really changes. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are never content. Everything under the sun is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Any questions? Look at verse 28 with me. And they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him in whom he has sent. In the previous verse, Jesus told them he would give them the food that endures into eternal life. But note the irony of the Lord's invitation. Work for food which endures into eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. The paradox echoes the invitation of God in Isaiah 55, 1, where we read, Come buy wine without money and without cost. Sadly, they completely missed his point. They ignored the word give and pounced on the word work. But salvation does not come from human effort, achievement, or moral works, but from a faith that inevitably produces good works. That's what many people want to know. Just tell me what I have to do to get to heaven. The answer to that question for most people means to ignore the real problem of sin. Instead, just try a little harder. I read this week about a 67-year-old woman scheduled for routine cataract surgery who thought it was just dry eye and old age causing her discomfort. But the real cause of her discomfort was much more concerning. The doctor found 27 contact lenses stuck in the woman's right eye. The doctor said the woman hadn't complained about any visual trouble before the operation. But when the anesthesiologist started to number eye for surgery, he found the first cluster of contacts. The doctor said he put a speculum into the eye to hold the eye open as he put the anesthetic in, and he noticed a blue mass under the top of her eyelid. Eventually, they found a mass of 27 lenses. We were all shocked. We've never come across this. A representative from the American Academy said he's been he's seen patients that had one lens stuck, but never 27. This is one for the record books as far as I could tell, he said. The woman had been wearing disposable monthly contact lenses for 35 years, but it's unclear how long they had been gathering under her eye. Sometimes when she would try to remove a contact from that eye, she couldn't find it. The patient just feared she dropped it somewhere, but it was actually getting stuck in her eye with the others. How very sad. Instead of going to the doctor and seeing the person that could fix her blurred vision, she just tried harder. She kept adding something else, thinking that must be the problem. What this woman needed wasn't something else added to her life, 
She needed something to be removed. And so too with mankind. We don't need another religion or another set of rules. We need someone to remove our sin, and that's what the gospel is all about. I wonder what happened when Jesus refused to feed them physically the second time. I assume that most of them just went home from lunch and are never heard again in the narrative. Whatever the case, we know that after his speech in the synagogue, many of the disciples will turn back and no longer follow him. Do we also, though, seek half-heartedly and then get discouraged when our prayer or Bible study is not that all we had hoped it would be? Do we also lose interest when we find that Jesus wants to lead us in a way that at first does not appeal to us? Or do we press on? David explains some of his difficulties in Psalm 27, but then he declared with determinism, My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, O Lord, will I seek. That's all we have to do. Seek his face and accept his free gift. As we close, Puritan writer William Gurnall writes, No help can come to the sinner as long as unbelief bolts the door of his heart. Suppose a judge offers life to a condemned man on the condition that the prisoner only has to read a psalm of mercy. If the person refused to do this, his refusal is what hangs him. The promise of the gospel is this psalm of mercy. If you refuse to believe and are damned, you go to hell for unbelief and not for any other sin. He finishes by writing, Freedom is offered if you receive Christ and believe on him. And Father, I pray that that is what all of us would desire. No matter where we are with you, Lord, whether we have been saved for 30 years, been saved two weeks, or are still searching, that you would make that freedom real to each one of us. For it is for freedom that you have set us free. Do that, I pray, O God, in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you guys.